Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Our study through the Gospel of Matthew has brought us here to the beginning of, of chapter 18. And, and this chapter actually begins a new section in Matthew's Gospel. It's another one of Matthew's prolonged um, uh, recordings of Jesus' teachings. We've seen that uh, sprinkled throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Remember uh, the, these long discourses like chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And then there was another one in chapter 10, another one in chapter 13. And then now here in 18 through 20, it's going to be primarily uh, records of Jesus' teaching. Specifically here now in chapter 18, Jesus is teaching about, um, I mean really all of his teaching has, has been talking about what it looks like to become a citizen or to live as a citizen, citizen in the kingdom of God. And now in chapter 18 specifically, he's going to focus in on um, what life together should look like as, as citizens in the kingdom of God. We could talk about the corporate life of the church what that should look like. And so that's going to be kind of the theme here in chapter 18. This morning I want us to consider verses 1 through 9 of Matthew 18. So uh, let's begin by reading that. It can be found on page 823 if you're using the, the black church Bibles. And I'd ask the congregation to stand, please, for the reading of God's word. Just follow along in your copy as, as I read, Matthew 18, 1 through 9. <clears throat> At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Let's pray once again. Thank you, Father, for giving us your very words. Through them now may you give life and faith and growth for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I want to start us off with a question for you. What character trait is essential to becoming and to being a Christian? What character trait is essential in becoming and then living as a Christian? Well, Jesus is going to tell us in this passage. And I want to walk through verses 1 through 9 under three headings. 
Heading number one is humble self-assessment. Humble self-assessment. Now let me just set the context once again. Remember at this point in Matthew's gospel, by God's grace, the disciples have recognized that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised king sent from God. And so with the disciples having publicly confessed that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus now kind of shifts the focus of his ministry away from a public itinerant ministry to the crowds and begins uh, really trying to prepare the disciples for what his mission is and then physically he begins with the disciples heading toward Jerusalem. I think it's in Luke's gospel where it says he, he set his face to go toward Jerusalem, right? He knows why God has sent him and he is determined to carry out his mission of redemption. And so along the way, again, Jesus has been explaining to his disciples what's going to happen to him when they arrive in Jerusalem. Remember, he's been uh, periodically giving them those, those announcements, <laughs> but they're not, it doesn't seem to be sinking in fully to them. So that's where we are. And so then in verse 1, Matthew records, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And if you look at Mark's uh, account of this of this interaction, he gives uh, a little more context. He tells us that as they've been traveling, they're heading to Capernaum, and, and as they've been traveling, the disciples have actually been arguing about this very issue. They've been arguing about who is the greatest among them. In other words, they've been, been arguing which one of them is the greatest, which one of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. You know, and it's, it, it's like having recognized that Jesus is the Messiah, and now that they're heading toward Jerusalem, they're, they're getting this fervor because, they, again, in their mind, they're thinking Jesus, the Messiah, has come to overthrow the Romans, to reestablish this physical kingdom, and, and so they start jockeying for position within that kingdom. You know? And so you can just imagine what that might have sounded like right, among these disciples. You know, one saying, oh, I'm, I'm the greatest. I mean, look at what... you know." Maybe it was Peter, James, or John saying, you know, I'm the greatest. I mean, look, I got to go with him. He picked me to go up on the mountain of transfiguration and see uh, a glimpse of his glory, right? You know, and, and others are like, no, you know, you're not reliable. He, he just, he didn't trust you enough to, to leave you by yourself. You know, that's why he took you. And, 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 and maybe, you know, Judas says, hey, well, I'm the greatest. I mean, he lets me be in charge of the money bag, you know. I mean, who knows what it sounded like, but the point is they were... They were arguing among this. Um, and, and you just think how sad a picture that is, how ironic a picture that is, right, of these men, these finite sinful men arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, all the while they're walking right alongside Jesus, the divine Son of God, God in the flesh, and he's about to willingly lay down his life. In, in Jerusalem. And so what a, what a contrast that is, right? But anyway, having argued among themselves about it on the journey, now here in Matthew 18.1, it's like they've arrived at Capernaum, and, and I guess uh, their, their, their pride, their selfish ambition has just spilled over. They want to get Jesus involved in this conversation, right? And so they say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now again, I don't know if they were specifically saying... Jesus, which one of us is going to be the greatest? Or if they're just asking and they're thinking, yeah, I'm going to see how I fit that profile, you know. Uh, tall, dark, handsome, whatever. You know, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
Look at how Jesus responds in verse 2. Before he even says anything, look at what he does in verse 2. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. And then verse 3, we'll record what he said. Um, Commentators suspect that they were probably actually in Peter's house. That's usually was kind of their landing spot when they were in Capernaum. So this might have been one of Peter's kids, you know. Uh, Little little, uh, toddler Peter, you know, doting about there. And and Jesus calls calls him and, and among the midst of them. Because he's going to use this child as an object lesson important to teach this important truth. And look what he says in, in verse 3. Having called the child in the midst of them, he says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says they need to become like this child. So what does he mean by that? What quality is he pointing to? Certainly he's not calling the disciples to be immature. He's not calling the disciples to be easily deceived or something, right? You know, as children sometimes are. Well, verse 4 tells us. Verse 4 hones in on what his point is, what quality he's pointing to. Verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is highlighting humility. He's using this little child to highlight the the quality of humility. And by and large, there is humility in children, especially young children. And you think about what just happened. That, That young child submitted himself and humbly obeyed the call of Jesus to come in their midst. Right? So he did demonstrate a a humility. He did demonstrate a, a, a humble obedience and faith. Young children, this will help us maybe understand this a little better as well. In their context, in their day, young children were especially humble because in that culture, children were at the bottom of the pecking order, right? They weren't kind of like the the center of of like our culture is, right? No, they were just kind of, they were down there and and those children knew that they were at the bottom of the the totem pole, so to speak, right? uh, Unlike the disciples, a child would know his place, (laughs) And so Jesus uses this child to teach that humility is essential to entering the kingdom of of heaven. Remember, that's Matthew's way of saying the kingdom of God. It's essential. That's that's not an overstatement. This is a non-negotiable. Jesus says, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, talk about putting things in perspective, right? The disciples have been arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is kind of like, in, in, in one sense, he's kind of saying, hey, you need to just make sure you're going to be there first of all, okay? Because the, the way you guys are showing pride, you know, the fact that you're arguing about who's the greatest reveals that you still have a lot of pride in your heart. And so unless you turn and humble yourself like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, And that's why I began saying what character trait is essential to becoming a Christian. It's humility, isn't it? To enter the kingdom, to even become a Christian, there must be humility, right? There must be a recognition that I am a sinner who needs a Savior and that my sin has incurred a debt before Almighty God, before my Holy Creator, that I could never repay. 
That there's nothing in my own power, my own ability, in my own goodness, there's nothing that I can do to make myself right with God. There's nothing I can do to, to, to save myself. I need a Savior. I need God to show me mercy. I need Christ's sacrifice to pay for my sins. That's the gospel. That's the humility that is required before one can enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and really, Jesus has already taught on this, hasn't he? Think back to the Sermon on the Mount, how he began in the Beatitudes there. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's exactly what we're talking about, that humility, being poor in spirit. Those are people who realize that on their own, they are spiritually bankrupt. Again, they realize that Almighty God, our Creator, demands Perfect obedience, perfect righteousness, and I fall way short. I am, I'm undone. I'm bankrupt. I have nothing to offer to God to, that makes me deserve salvation. I'm completely relying upon his mercy and his provision of a Savior, and that Savior is his Son, Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus, again, is saying in, back in Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, because Every person, that's true of them, that they're bankrupt before God, but only by God's grace do some recognize that, right? Only by God's grace do some call out to God for mercy and trust in Christ. And so that's why Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those who recognize their great need, and those who see in Christ the provision of that need. They are the ones who enter the kingdom of God. They are the ones who have eternal life. They are the ones who are saved from God's wrath. So again, please see that humility is absolutely essential in order for you to be saved. You must recognize that you are a sinner who needs to be rescued. You must believe and accept and embrace that you cannot save yourself. That your only hope for salvation is God's grace through Jesus Christ. Sadly, there's many who don't recognize that, do they? They think, well, you know, I've, kind of, I've grown up in, in the church, or I've kind of, you know, I've, I, I, I try to be a good person, and, you know, they, I just kind of, they just kind of assume that I'm a Christian. They assume that God would be pleased to have me, and, and you know, why, why not, right? They never come to that crisis point, that, that bankruptcy point of saying, God have mercy on me, the sinner, like the tax collector said in Jesus' parable, right? Notice Jesus says, unless you turn and become like children. (laughs) See, there's repentance right there. That's the idea. Turn. People by nature are not humble. People by nature are self-seeking. People by nature are self-righteous. People by nature are living for themselves. And so he says, "That, that will never get you saved. That person is not saved. You must turn. You must turn from that selfishness. Turn from that self-righteousness. And again, recognize your poverty and recognize that Jesus is Lord and that you want to live for him. That's how one becomes a Christian. Many people remain lost in their sins. Either because they think they're not that bad. You know, they compare themselves to the next guy. Or they think that they can get to heaven on their own, their own good works. 
and they're still and remain on the, the broad path that leads to destruction. God says in his word, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Speaking of quotes, <laughs> Roger, uh, here's a quote from J.C. Ryle. Many of you know him. The Bishop Ryle wrote the book Holiness. He said, the surest mark of any true conversion is Humility. The truest mark of any, or sorry, the surest mark of any true conversion is humility, right? I mean, a Christian, someone who's truly been saved by God's grace, they're so grateful, they're so humble, because they know it is all God's grace. It's not that I'm doing God a favor by becoming a Christian, right? It's not that he needed me. No, by God's grace and mercy, he sent his son and he drew me to himself. And apart from that, I'm hopelessly lost. And so I pray that everyone here today has that same humility. I pray that each one of you is humble in spirit. And that you you recognize that your only hope is Christ. All I have is Christ, we sing, right? When I stand before God and he asks me why he should let me into heaven, my, my answer will be, because of Christ. Because of your mercy to me through Christ, it won't be anything I've done. May we all have that that humble recognition, that humble self-assessment. Humble faith is how we enter into the kingdom, and then humility should continue to characterize how we live in the kingdom. Christians should continue to have a humble attitude. Isn't this interesting, by the way? Um, We talked about this last week, didn't we? Jesus modeled this. He was demonstrating humility. And now he's talking about humility in his followers. I was thinking about this. Christians should be the most humble people around, right? I mean, if you think about it. Out of all the people that we come in contact with, don't you think Christians should be the most humble? (laughs) Because we've been shown such grace and mercy. Because our sins have been forgiven as far as the east is from the west. We who were were far from God, we were separated from him. We've been adopted into his family and and we're co-heirs with Christ. I think it was Piper said the the most humbling way to be treated in in all the world, or however he said it was, is with absolute mercy. It's humbling and it's beautiful. Because it points to God's grace. So may humility continue to characterize us, loved ones. As we grow spiritually, we should be even more aware of our sin, even more aware of God's holiness, and and more aware that we continue to rely completely upon Christ. And we should strive to grow in humility. Because again, getting back to what the disciples were arguing about, right? Who's the greatest? Well, look at verse 4. Jesus says, humility is the mark of true greatness. Verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) One commentator pointed out, you know, Jesus doesn't condemn the idea of pursuing greatness. He just revolutionizes it, redefines it. (laughs) 
their mind of greatness was, you know, power and, and who can I boss around? And no, he says, okay, fine. You want to be great in the kingdom, humble yourself and implied in that is serve others to the glory of God, right? In Jesus' kingdom, greatness is measured by humble service, right? What a paradigm shift from the world, right? It's not measured by money, power, beauty, but by humble service. We think greatness occurs by getting others to serve us. But Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, the son of man, remember, the one who's been given all power and authority, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says greatness occurs when we humbly serve others to the glory of God. And that leads us right into our second heading. First heading was humble self-assessment. Second heading, loving care. In verses 5 through 7, that's what I entitled loving care. Look at verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, Jesus says. Okay, receiving means welcoming into fellowship. And along with it, it carries the idea of serving, helping, right? That's what he means by receive. So who are we to receive? Well, again, understand Jesus is not talking about literal children here. I mean, he's not just saying, hey, I want you to all be in children's ministry or something, right? You know, just welcoming little kids. No, he's not saying that. Rather, he's talking about believers. He's talking about receiving believers. Specifically, he's talking about new believers, right? The, those, those who are um, insignificant, which is all, all Christians, but I mean insignificant, weak, new in the faith. Receive them, right? That's what he's just been talking about in verses 3 through 4. Uh, being a child is what it means to be a Christian, that humility. And so now he says, receive them. And again, a child in their culture had no status, no prestige. They were at the lowest end again. No power, no money. And so to serve a child, it was like you were just doing that out of kindness. You weren't, you weren't going to get anything back in return, right? And so what Jesus is saying here when he talks about, remember, he's, he's, he's describing what this what it looks like to be a citizen in the kingdom of God and how we should be living together in that kingdom. He's saying, welcome, receive new believers into your fellowship. Don't only, fellow, don't only fellowship and serve with those who are of a high status, those who are like you, those who you get along with perfectly. Don't only serve and welcome them. Rather, welcome and serve all who come to me in my name. All who I'm drawing to myself. Welcome and serve every believer of Christ, no matter their status, no matter what, they, what you feel like they bring to the table, no matter what they can do in return, simply serve out of love for others and a desire for Christ to be glorified. The New Testament fleshes this out for us, doesn't it? I won't even get into all the passages in 1 Corinthians, you know, about the members of the body of Christ serving one another. You, you can read those. But I did want to read for you James chapter 2. Verses 1 through 4, he's saying the same thing that Jesus is saying here in Matthew 18. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and also a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, oh, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, ah, stand over there. 
or sit down at my feet. Verse 4, have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? So you see, James is, God through the pen of James is saying, I want you to show loving care to every single person that comes into your fellowship. Every person who comes uh, either already proclaiming faith in Christ, maybe they're what we call a seeker, right? Seeking to, to know more about Christ. And so what a good reminder for us. And I thank God for, I see this a lot at AGC. And so I praise God for that. But let's, let's keep it up. Let's seek to grow in it. Here at AGC, we should warmly welcome and serve everyone who comes through these doors. Whether it's a seasoned, mature believer, or a brand new Christian, or even an unbeliever setting foot in church for the first time. No matter what, they should all get the same kind of loving care, the same kind of welcome, the same kind of service. Right? We should show the same kind of love and hospitality to a fancy businessman or to someone who's been living off the streets. And not just to visitors. This is a reminder to us to show the same loving care to every member of AGC. Right? They may be uh, from a different age, from a different culture, have a different personality than you. But as the body of Christ, we are to show loving care to every member. God is glorified through that. Jesus says, notice this receiving, this welcoming and serving, it's done in my name, he says. It's helping people, it's serving people for the glory of Jesus. Helping people because of what Jesus has done for us. It's done in his name. We are the body of Christ. And notice what else he says. Think about this. As you do what I've been describing, as you, by God's grace, welcome and serve others, even those who seem insignificant, even those who are very different than you, guess who you're ultimately serving? Who? Jesus, right? Look look back at Matthew 18, verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, Jesus says. By serving others, especially the insignificant, you are in fact serving Christ. And Jesus will teach the same thing later in Matthew chapter 25. Remember that long, that long uh, discourse about, you know, uh, Jesus, when did we serve you, visit you in prison? And when did we do this? When did we do that? I'll just read verse 40, Matthew 25, 40. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me, Jesus says. So when we learn to welcome and serve people with no thought to their status, with no thought of, of oh, I wonder what they can do for us. <laughs> when, we, when we can just love and serve whoever God brings across our path, then we're, we're living the kingdom values. Then we're being like Christ by God's grace. And of course, Jesus' death is the greatest example of this, isn't it? Of humble service. Think about it. What did we have to offer Christ? (laughs) Talk about being insignificant. Talk about not not having anything to to offer. Jesus died for us. He didn't need us. It's not like he was lacking in some way. No, he just out out of love and grace and mercy died for us. Laid down his life even though there was nothing that we could do to repay him. Now then, that, 
right? Verses 5 through 7 all have the same theme of loving care. We've kind of talked about verse 5, but notice that in verses 6 and 7, loving care is not only welcoming, right? Not only receiving and serving other believers, but also loving care is being careful not to cause them to stumble. Verses 6 through 7, being careful not to cause them to stumble. Look at verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Let me explain some terms here. Temptations to sin there in verse 7. It's that same Greek word we talked about last week. Scandalon. Right? Remember, to to cause to stumble, to cause to trip. And you remember the idea is that a person is following Christ or being drawn to Christ, but then someone puts a stumbling block in their path and it trips them up, interferes with them following Christ. It's an obstacle. It's a, it's a stumbling block. That's, that's the, ver- the verb he's using, the word, the root word he's using there in verse 7 about temptations to sin and also in verse 6 about causing one of these little ones to sin. So it's that same idea. A person, a new believer, uh, uh, someone God is drawing perhaps, starting to follow Christ, starting to pursue Christ. But then because of their interaction with the body of Christ, they're tripped up. They're stumbled so badly that they, they even quit following Christ. When Jesus says little ones, again, he's not talking about children, but he's talking about new, immature believers. Those little ones, notice it says in verse 6, who believe in me. And he says little ones because they're humble, but also because they're weak and vulnerable. They're brand new believers. They're babes in Christ. And so he's saying, be careful not to put any stumbling block in them. Those things are going to happen. Verse 7, temptations are sure to come. In other words, he's saying, we live in a fallen world. There's going to be plenty of of temptations, plenty of obstacles put in a new believer's path, right? From outside. Whether it be persecution, whether it be distraction, whether it be false religion. This fallen world is going to try to tempt people to quit following Christ. Especially right at the beginning, right? I mean, many of you can testify to that you know maybe when God was started to first draw you and and you know you're starting to to share about that with to your friends and family they're like what no 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 don't get fanatical don't get crazy right you're not you're not any fun anymore whatever it was right and so Jesus says those temptations are going to come from unbelievers from the outside world people are going to tell you the Bible's not true they're going to say no 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 there's many ways to God you're being too sold out for Christ. Just ease up a little bit. Have an open mind. Don't be so, so, so unloving. Don't be so hateful. And again, in many parts of the world, they're threatened, right? So yes, that's going to come from the world because the fallen world system is in opposition to Christ and his kingdom. But Jesus warns, don't let those temptations come from the body of Christ. How tragic is that? If if Christians are the ones tripping up new Christians. Be careful, he says. Watch yourselves. 
that you're not tripping someone up, that you're not causing someone to turn away from following me. So Jesus is telling us to examine our own lives, make sure there's nothing that we would do that would make a little one stumble. And again, there's lots of ways that that could happen, and I'll get into some of those, but in the context, we're specifically talking about our pride causing others to stumble. So again, how, how would this happen? What would that look like to cause a person to turn away from following Christ? Well, we've got to be careful not to criticize or belittle the faith and enthusiasm of new believers. Right? You know, a new believer comes in and you know, they don't know much. They just kind of know the very basics, kindergarten Christianity. And, you know, they say something. Maybe they say something wrong and, and in a Bible study. And the other seasoned believers jump down their throat. You know, oh, that's not right. And, you know, boom, boom, you know, start bringing out all their doctrines. And, and again, I'm not saying doctrine's wrong. But, man, that can happen in an unloving way, can it? And people are like, whoa. You know, the new believers just like, my goodness. Man, if this is what being a Christian is all about, or this is what being a part of the body of Christ is all about, forget it. You know, I'll go find an online community somewhere, you know, that's more loving. <laughs> Our spiritual pride can turn off new believers. And again, there's many other ways, and, 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 and some of it's related to pride, you know, hypocrisy. People who claim the name of Christ yet live no differently from the world. And so Jesus is saying, watch yourselves. Luke's account of this, he literally says, pay careful attention to yourselves. Ask ourselves, am I, whether, if I'm at work, am I being the kind of employee that would cause anyone to stumble, anyone to not want to follow Christ, not even want to inquire about Christ? Again, thinking about pride and how that manifests itself in so many ways. Is my selfishness, is my lack of love in the home, the way I treat my spouse, the way I treat my kids, is that turning them off to Christ in some way? Is my worldly lifestyle tripping anyone up from following Christ? Whether it's an unforgiving spirit, whether it's gossip, again, especially in the context, whether it's prideful attitude and speech, whether it's what we post on social media, is would that be causing someone to question the gospel? To say, well, wait a minute, they don't seem any different from the world. They're just as much into themselves and and as as the an unbeliever is. Why, why should I follow Christ? Why should I pay that price if it doesn't result in anything different? So again, you see the connection, don't you, between humility and loving care, right? These all flow together. We need a humble self-assessment of ourselves. I guess that's redundant, right? Self-assessment of ourselves. But maintain that humility so that... when. And that's going to overflow in how we treat others. We're going to be welcoming them. We're going to be so excited for what God's doing in their life. And yes, they have a lot to learn. And, but I, I remember I was there one day t- once too. And, and you know, God's been helping me to grow slowly, <laughs> right? 
And I'm just so thankful that, I'm, I'm, that God has saved me, and so I just have this humility, and so I'm patient with my unbelieving kids, and I'm, I, you know, I, I'm a sinner, I know, but I seek to put to death pride and selfishness with my spouse. I don't want anything to get in the way of, of someone following Christ. Verse 6, Jesus uses a graphic picture to show just how serious it is to cause a person to go astray, to stumble someone from trip them up to keep them from following Christ. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. You can get that picture, can't you? A millstone, if you've ever been to one of those old-fashioned places that show you how things were done, you know, a hundred and some years ago. Big old stone that they tie an animal to it and it goes around in a circle to grind up the, the grain or whatever. Imagine having that tied around your neck and being thrown into the, to the sea. Obviously, you, you sink down, 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 and you're, you're, you're done for. You're drowning. It's a horrifying image, a horrifying way of, of, of dying. But yet Jesus is saying that kind of harsh death will be better than the fate that awaits the one who leads others astray. In verse 7 he says, woe. Woe is the word used in the Bible to lament the terrible end of a person who's judged by God in hell. And so we have to kind of figure this out. I mean, the full force of that woe must be for unbelievers, right? Because they're the ones who are going to be in hell. And Jesus is going to be saying some woes, especially to the false teachers, because they are the ones that put huge stumbling blocks in the way of people following Christ through their hypocrisy, through their false teaching. And so I think the full force of that woe would be for them. But yet, if nothing else, we see that Jesus takes this very seriously, doesn't he? Few things disturb Christ more than causing new or weak or uninformed believers to sin. And if, if Christians would do this, Praise God that our, our sins are covered by Christ. But we're going to face some, some loving discipline from the Father. Right? And, and it's going to be tragic. So Jesus' words are a warning to make sure there's nothing in our lives which would make other believers stumble. I need to move on here to the last one. There's so many, I mean, there's, there's so much we could talk about there. There's so many other ways. And again, it doesn't, it primarily is talking about new believers, but we can cause, we can trip anybody up in the body of Christ, right? Through our gossip, through our complaining about the government all the time, through our immodesty. I mean, there's a, a myriad of ways. So I hope that we see, once again, we're reminded, we have a responsibility to each other. I, I was thinking about Cain's infamous words. Of course, he had murdered his brother, right? And Jesus, or God is like, you know, where's, where's your brother Abel? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? You know? And, and when it comes to the body of Christ, yes. I mean, God's ultimately the one who keeps us, but we have a responsibility to each other, don't we? Okay. I said I'd move on. Third heading. <laughs> Radical removal. It, it was hard to, to stop at verse 7 because these all kind of go together. 
right? He's just talking about temptations to sin and, and remove, make, be careful not to put stumbling blocks in other people's way. And now it's like he's saying, and by the way, get rid of anything that's going to cause yourself to stumble. Verse 8, and if your right hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So again, this heading is radical removal. We've talked about this before, so I, I, maybe I can go quickly through it because these verses are almost verbatim what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. That was in the context of lust. This is in the context primarily of pride. Get rid of whatever's causing you to sin. And again, it's just a reminder for us to take sin seriously. That's so important, isn't it? Take sin seriously. Are there things in my life that are causing me to sin? Yes, I know I'm gonna, it's going to be a battle. But as I look at my life, are there th- repeated things, where I, repeated areas where I'm sinning? Well, what's leading to that? Is it places I go? Is it things I watch? Is it people I hang with? And if the answer is yes, Jesus says we must go to extremes to rid ourselves of those things. Fighting sin means radical amputation. And so I, I, we talked about this back in Matthew 5. Going costly sacrifice. If something's causing me to sin, I'm going to get rid of it. Even, if it's, even though it's going to be a sacrifice. If there's porn, pornographic magazines or videos, I'm going to go and destroy those. If it's, if it's the internet and I just can't con- control myself and, and uh, you know, no blockers and all that, I'm going to get rid of the internet. I'm going to live without that. I'm going I'm to have a dumb phone and not a smartphone, whatever it needs to be, so that I won't sin. If, there, if I have friends, if there's acquaintances who are constantly tempting me to sin, then I've got to break off that relationship. If it's TV, if it's social media, and it's causing me to, to sin in different ways, to covet, to, to, to lust, to distra- distracting me, I've got to just cut that off. I've got to just remove that habit from my life. But again, the context is especially getting rid of pride. Pride. So think about it. If I'm posting on social media to get people to look at me, then I should cut off social media, right? I mean, isn't that how a lot of the world uses social media? Look at me. You know, look at me in this outfit. Look at me in this new hairdo. Look at me on, on my vacation or whatever. Look at me, look at me, look at me. I mean, isn't it ironic? Selfies? <laughs> Self. Self is, is a big problem that causes us to sin oftentimes because I'm thinking too much about myself, right? Humility is not, by the way, saying, oh, I'm, I'm just a loser, I'm, I'm good for nothing. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's removing yourself from the equation, right? And so let's use these tools. Let's use social media for the, for the glory of God, Let's use it to encourage. Let's use it to get the word of God out. Let's use it to, you know, check up on others. And, and I, I'm sure a lot of you do that. But let's not use it to say, look at me. 
<laughs> and how many likes am I going to get, right? No, we need to get rid of, of these things that are tempting us to pride because pride just leads to all this other trouble. Pride causes myself to stumble. Pride causes other people to stumble. And again, Jesus points to the importance of this too, right? Because he says it's better to cut your hand off, your eye, pluck your eye out, than to end up in eternal hell. Not practicing radical amputation shows that you are not saved. Because you're not willing to get rid of your sin. You're not willing to fight your sin. We know we're saved by God's grace. That's why Jesus died on the cross. So that all who turn from their sins and embrace him by faith are saved. But the Bible also teaches that those who are truly saved have the Holy Spirit and they will hate sin. And so what Jesus is saying here is if we take sin lightly, if we're not willing to part with it, if we're not willing to battle it by the enabling of the Spirit, then that's, that's a big warning light to us that we may not even have the Spirit. So, I entitled the message, Pursuing Humility and Holiness. That's what we need to do. Pursue humility and holiness. As by God's grace we pursue that, we will portray the beauty of Christ. And rather than tripping others up, I know we've kind of again focused on the negative here today, but the opposite will be true. As God helps us pursue humility, pursue um, holiness God will use us to actually help people along the path of their Christian life God could work through us to actually draw people to himself rather than trip them up and stumble them what a joy that would be right to be used by God to see others grow and come to Christ and grow in Christ so that's, that's our prayer that's our hope that's our vision for our church Let's ask God for grace to cultivate humility and to grow in Christ's likeness. And may God be glorified as we daily seek him, right? That's how we're going to grow in humility, is to daily remind ourselves of the gospel. Again, there's, there's a, I don't, I, I'll put them by the, the post again, but there's those books, little booklets on, on, the, on the gospel, the gospel primer. Let's remind ourselves of the gospel daily. That will cultivate humility in us. And may God be pleased to draw many to himself. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for Christ. We praise you for his humility. Again, that we heard last week from Philippians 2. His humble service. Him dying for your glory and for the good of others. We praise you for your grace that drew us, Lord, that showed us our spiritual bankruptcy. We praise you for how kind you've been to us. Please forgive us for when we, for our pride. Please forgive us that we know sometimes the, the longer we're Christian, the, we lose our awe of, of your grace. We, we start thinking, well, yeah, this is just how it's always been, or I deserve this, or whatever. No. Father, please keep us humble. Please keep us grateful. 
And Father, may, may you use us, whether it be our gatherings here, whether it be as we're out throughout the week. Lord, please use Abounding Grace Church as instruments of your grace in the lives of others. Lord, that we know you have other people that you are drawing to yourself and we would love to be used by you to, to help them. To, to just share with them, yes, you know, what, what your grace in our lives, and these are areas where we struggle in too, but let's, let's pursue Christ together. Oh, help us, Lord, be a place where it's safe for your, to bring your little ones in, where they can be nurtured and, and discipled. May we make disciples for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll sing.